This is Depth of Field, and I am your host, Rachel. Depth of Field has provided me with the most wonderful excuse to sit down with photographers and ask them questions about their craft, their vision, their philosophy, and how they do what they do. I have found it to be incredibly rewarding, and despite the expectations I have for a guest, I am continuously surprised as new perspectives are shared with me. Within a week of moving to Nova Scotia, I came to know of a small sand dune 300 kilometers off the coast of Halifax called Sable Island, where wild horses are said to roam free. It's small, somewhat desolate, and at the same time, full of life. My guest this week doubles as a marine zoologist, which brings him to Sable Island once a year for research. Go ahead, ask him about seals. But there is no resisting the wild horses. His photos of them and the island are thoughtful, peaceful, minimalist, and free in nature. I soon learned that this approach was the result of a type of contemplative photography Damien practices called mixum. For those looking to shake it up a bit and try out a meditative approach to photography, you'll probably find something of interest in our conversation today. Allow me to introduce Damien Midgard. Welcome to The Field. Welcome to Depth of Field. Thank you so much for your time and chatting with me. Did you want to start by introducing yourself? Yeah, I'm Damien Midgard and I'm a uh, photographer and a research zoologist. And I really find it interesting when people cross different areas of study or interest. Do you want to tell me a little bit about your research? Yeah, so my research is on marine mammals. So I got in I got involved with marine mammals starting in 1993 and have pursued that interest since then doing um, masters of science and then through to PhD and now I'm based at Dalhousie University where I'm a research associate and my current research is looking at interactions between grey seals and Atlantic cod using uh, satellite and acoustic telemetry. Okay, and that brings you to Sable Island once a year, does it? Yeah, so that introduced me to Sable Island. That's where I did my PhD um, because it, it's, Sable Island has a very large grey seal colony and there's been a long-term, well-established research program on the island that I got involved with through my PhD and I've so I first started going to Sable Island December '96, and have been going out at least once each year to do research. Uh, my latest trip was just in January this year. Right, you just got back, so it's still kind of fresh. <laughs> Can you describe Sable Island? Like, how far is it from Halifax? So uh, it's 300 kilometers east-southeast of Halifax. It's very close to the continental shelf in the Atlantic Ocean. It's a sand, essentially it's a sandbar, uh, about 50, changes its length quite frequently, but it's like between 40 and 50 kilometers long, uh, but very narrow, so it's like a crescent-shaped, it's about a kilometer and a half at its widest point. And uh, people of Nova Scotia uh, are very familiar with this island. You, you're, if you're at school, you're, you know, you're taught about it when, you're, when you enter school um, because there's a lot of history associated with the island. 
And there's a population, a wild population of horses that have been on the island since the mid-1700s. And that's, uh, to the people of Nova Scotia, that is uh, the greatest attraction about the island. Um, For me, the greatest attraction is the fact that it is uh, an island that um, is uh, very isolated and remote, very raw, and lots of wildlife. So... You know, large seal colony and uh, an important place for migratory birds, and and of course the uh, the wild horse. Can you describe what it's like to be on Sable Island? So maybe like the sights, the sounds, smells, textures, temperatures, um, things like that for anyone who's maybe not yeah, familiar so with I, it. <laughs> I mostly go in the winter, so mid to late December to until the end of January. So that's when the grey seals are breeding. And I find that's when Sable Island really comes alive because of the the um, rather extreme and variable weather that we get out there. So when I first arrived, the smell is something which I really like. It's a... Um, well, you can often smell death around because there are um, <laughs> lots of dead seals mm. around. And that kind of grounds you because I mean, that's what nature and life is all about. And you kind of, you don't sort of, you're not exposed to that, of course, when you're walking through a city. Yeah. Um, and then the great, the male grey seal has this musky smell too. So... Um, that to me is um, some people would probably find it somewhat off-putting, but for me, it's, it's a very welcoming smell. You're like, I'm here uh, now. It's <laughs> good. Sorry. It's just yeah, it's a strong representation of the island, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, sound. I mean, it, you often, I mean, you hear the surf wherever you are on the island because it's a very narrow island, so you're always surrounded by sea, which is for me, really enjoyable. And the surf is often um, extremely wild and turbulent. And so that's lots of energy. And so I, can, I find that exciting. And so you always have salt spray um, around the island. It's always windy, so it's, you know, it's usually around 25 knots. It's kind of a, you know, it's not not unusual at all um, on Sable. In fact, when there is no wind, it's very spooky. You know something <laughs> bad is about to arrive. Um, and when actually when I come back to the mainland and there's no wind, it feels really weird. Mm. Um, and it's, it is warmer on the island than it is on the mainland, but you have, um, because you're you have this sea, which, of course, is releasing warmth, um, but it's you know it's much more windy. So you do get a when the cold temperatures arrive, um, you get a much stronger wind chill. And it's still the middle of the winter, though. So, like, what does that put you at, temperature-wise? Even if it is a little bit warmer than uh, than the mainland. Yeah. So if it's just a few degrees below. Um, zero, it can be, you know, sort of, if it's a strong wind, it it can take you down to, like, below minus 10, feel it like minus 10. Um, 
Unfortunately, it doesn't really get that cold anymore on sable. It certainly used to, but the temperatures now um, are quite often they're above zero. This this season was somewhat different. It was often below zero um, with strong winds, but typically it's it can be it's typically a, a little bit above zero. I, I guess there's a lot you've been able to um, kind of notice trend-wise, having studied on the island for, what, 20 years now? Is that what you were saying? Yeah, actually, that's correct, 20 years, yes. <laughs> a little bit of a shocker sometimes when you go back yeah, and count how many years, but... <laughs> um, um, yes, yeah, so... Um, the climate's changed. I mean, I, I, I can tell that um, it, it, ha- it has got warmer um, over... Since I've been there, my PhD supervisor started his work on the island in the mid-70s, early Mm. mid-70s, and um, that's certainly a a huge change there. And that warming has actually led to the the horse population um, in recent years has been steadily increasing because of these warmer winters. So when I first started going to the island, we would have winters which would be really harsh, um, you know, my, I remember a very harsh winter where it was minus 14 without wind chill. And um, it, that kind of weather uh, would great, drastically reduce the horse population. So young and uh, weak and, or old horses wouldn't survive the winter. And then the population would rebound in subsequent years. Mm. And that kind of cycle doesn't... Um, happen as um, often now. Well, and I'm sure too. As a, I find a humid cold to be much worse than a dry cold. Oh yes, yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah. What kind of relationship do uh, the researchers have? Do you guys have with the uh, wildlife on the island? I mean, are they used to you now? What's that like? So the horses are very timid. Um, so. They won't come very close to you, and if they do come close, they're extremely um, nervous. So um, photographing those horses requires sort of patience and often having to kneel down using long, a long lens <laughs> not to spook them. Uh, we work with the seals every day, and, the, and some of those seals we've been working with um, for many years and you can tell that they are used to us around. <laughs> um, it varies from one seal to another, but some seals will, you know, let you come right up. And as long as you're not making any um, sudden movements, you can be okay. But um, there are some which, which, regardless of how many, how how often we've been there, they are they're very aggressive towards you. <laughs> can you identify um, them like individual seals? Yeah. We can, uh, yeah. So we know <laughs> <laughs> who you can approach. <laughs> yeah, and then of course the ones the, the, the ones which we can't identify, uh, which we don't know. And you know, you'll be standing in the colony doing something, and this female will just come, you know, like ten feet away. She'll just come right up to you and try and take you know a bite out of your leg. Oh my gosh! Doesn't happen very often, but um, it has happened, and yeah. So 
I think, yes. So I think in some regards they have got used to us being there. Um, but still certainly very cautious. Right. And yeah. uh, wh when did you get into photography? So that started... Uh, I got my first camera around the beginning of the 90s. And that... That, I, that became a very enjoyable pastime for me because it allowed, I found it allowed me to connect with um, wildlife more. So my, my undergraduate degree is in zoology. So essentially, since I was a kid, I've always been in, interested in wildlife. And the photography just allowed me to, to get closer to wildlife, to study it more. And particularly when I started doing a lot of field research with marine mammals in, in some various places around the world that I um, really enjoyed not doing the science and just switching over and, and doing photography. Mm. Um, it gave, gave, certainly gave me a, a greater appreciation of where I was because um, often when you're involved in research, your mind is very occupied and you can forget you know, where you are. And we often can, we often go to places where it's generally quite difficult to get to. So it's always good to appreciate the, the chances that we have. And then, um, so the, the science, however, really dominated my life until um, 2005 when my, uh, life kind of turned, it was a very dramatic event in my life when I lost my father to pancreatic cancer mm. very quickly. Um, you know, it was like a matter of weeks rather than uh, months. And right. so that kind of flipped me over and I, you know, um, it took me quite a while to get back up. And, the only, and I found that the only thing that I could really connect with was my photography um so the science just kind of dropped away and i didn't you know i just stopped doing science um and i put all my energy into my photography and at around the same time that's when i um came across the practice of mixang which uh, contemplated photography which is tied in with shambhala buddhism Mm -hmm. And that, so that, when I found that... Um, yeah, I wanted I to ask you about that. <laughs> yeah, that, then that really changed. My photog I found my photography actually moving in that direction, and I didn't really quite understand what was happening. So I just suddenly found myself a lot more um, interested in very simple, open images, and I just kind of followed it. And then when I found, when I came across Mixang, it just to, it just connected, totally connected, and I began to understand um, what was happening. Um, and the Mixang just really allowed me to study that approach to photography and um, extend it. So you found it really kind of gave well. you a, a point at which to step back and view everything or see it. 
in yeah. a holistic manner or yeah so up to that point i didn't i didn't realize that what i was really interested in with respect to the art of photography is not actually the camera but just looking and seeing and, and seeing the world in a very simplistic and very open way um and just yeah. just maybe real quick do you want to describe mixung contemplative photography or the the concept behind it for our listeners so the approach to it is uh, um, one of um, o- openness and um, seeing the world in a very fresh, open way with no um, agendas or judgment or um, um, I've forgotten what the word I was going to say was, but um, you basically accept what what you see in front of you as as what it is, and you don't try to um, make it better or improve it. So there is there are various when you first start to study the exercise the form, there are various exercises that you can do to help you. Mm-hmm. But generally, there are four there are. Uh, three or four stages that you go through. So the first one is that you, um, you you have to get yourself into a very open and meditative state. So a lot of people who do mixang are actually involved in meditation. Right. I got that impression that it was very similar. Yeah. It's a form of meditation almost. Um, yeah, absolutely. It is. I mean, I've studied Buddhism, and when uh, mixang often com- comes into um, the practices, the style that is taught in Mixang is, is quite similar to what is taught in other um, approaches to, to meditation. So through meditation, you, your eyes, you, you come a lot more open. So it's like you're walking down the street and you're really not walking anywhere. You're really not looking at anything. You're just walking uh, with, slowly with your mind open and then something will just kind of... Um, jump out at you, out at you, something will stop you. And so you, you look at this, and this is what they call a, a raw perception. Um, so this is something that is very fleeting. So it, it, it happens, and the perception is there, and it exists before your mind starts to uh, click in and start to judge it and add labels to it and so forth. So mm-hmm. you connect with this perception and and um, you don't judge it. You don't label it. So if it was a blue bus, you don't call it a blue bus. And you know you just see it as what it is. And then you go through a a, a, um, a practice of what they call visual discernment, where you identify exactly what it was that jumped out at you, out at you. So everything on the periphery is kind of excluded. And then you raise your camera at the very last part. So it's basically, you know, the camera um, is involved in about 10% of the practice. Mm. The camera just comes up to capture this perception. And if done correctly, what you see in your image is exactly what stopped you. Mm. I I found that um, looking through your work, uh, you do have several photos of the the whole picture but but i find that you you often target 
shapes and textures and lines and uh, you know fragments segments elements of uh, yeah. particular images is this an example of how you interpret uh, mixung yeah so for example example if i'm on sable island often i'll be shooting the hairs on the mane of the horse because of the texture and the sharp shape and form and sometimes color rather than the whole head of the horse um that's what uh, you know has captivated me captured my attention and how would you encourage um or advise newcomers to this idea to explore this medium of photography or thought well you have you have to be open in the sense like a lot of um some photographers really have a hard time um grasping the practice um because you have to get essentially you have to drop everything that was that you've learned about photography there are no rules mm-hmm. um so there are no rules you have to um get into the practice of not judging something um not trying to make it better so you you know once you've got your image you don't go back to your studio with photoshop and improve the image um it is what it is mm. um but to get to that point is requires um practicing being very calm and open and and when you do that when you really get into that state then you really start to see the, the world in a very different manner things will just start to jump out at you if your mind is engaged if you're thinking about what you have to do in 10 minutes or what you did yesterday you, you it won't happen so it's so on sable island it i have you know like um i can't um well i i'm better at it now but um if i'm too involved in my research then you know i'm i'm not seeing i'm not seeing things i have to actually disconnect myself and get into the state um of mind before i can engage so it's it's a, it's an interesting uh approach to the arts mm-hmm. um what do you yeah. feel what do you feel it's offered you or that you've taken from it a lot i mean it has <laughs> it i think it's actually helped me um get through that difficult period that i had mm-hmm. um by it did introduce me to meditation to the practice of buddhism and has allowed me to appreciate this world much more so when i walk to work you know i'm things are just little simple but beautiful fleeting moments are uh, happen as i'm walking to work uh so i see so much more so if i'm walking with a bunch of friends um i'll often just stop and take a photograph of something with my iphone and then when i show it to them they'll they'll be like whoa you know i didn't see that mm-hmm. so that happens to me all the time now mm. and so yeah, I'm yeah, an appreciation. Yeah. 
<laughs> and uh, so I'm, I'm kind of curious because it sounds as if, I mean, obviously this has really influenced the type of photography that you take. And I would imagine that your your background, well, your current work doing doing research is also very influential. Is it, would that be the case? Just knowing about the animals and seeing them from a perspective of a researcher. I think so. Uh, it's, that's where my interest in biology, zoology, uh, mm-hmm. is in, is behavior. So I've spent many hours lying on top of a cliff you know, all day, eight hours, you know, whether just watching a group of seals and recording their behavior. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so yes, I guess I've, you know, I do think that that has helped me to um, just stand or sit and just observe quietly without getting involved and just watching what happens. And I really enjoy that. Um, and when that, hap- and when I, when that happens, I, I, it's very easy for me to slide into this very open um, state where I, can, where I can see these perceptions arising. So I think, and, that, and just my connection with wildlife is, um, has been very strong throughout my life. And so that's, definitely influenced my photography but I'm also finding that I really enjoy doing street photography as well so just carrying my camera with me and walking down the street and observing people and things happening in the street um how can you uh compare those two I because I noticed that you um you were also interested in street photography and I'm just wondering if you can compare the the different approaches or, or do you have a different approach no, the, the approach is very similar. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, if I go to a new city, I'll grab my camera and I will just go walk about and I won't, you know, I'm not going to go to any particular place. I'm just going to walk down the street and I guess there's a practice of this in Buddhism. It's called aimless wandering. So mm-hmm. you just wander without any direction. Some of us do that um, naturally. <laughs> <laughs> and I love doing that. I mean, so, you know, if I follow my partner to conferences to Quebec, Montreal, or other places, then I love just walking with my camera. And in this, it's the same idea as to me walking around Sable Island. Um, just 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 by being open you see you see things and you see you know you can see people acting in a very you know natural way and catching capturing that on film so i think the approach is very similar to street photography so when you know so there are there are these famous um photographers andre cartier bresson for example i really connect with his work um because essentially it's very similar. That's, that's basically, you know, it's just observation. It's observing and and not you know, just capturing what you see without mm. trying to trying to make it more than what it is. Do you ever seek to express in so your photography? I, yeah, so I do talk. You know, I talk to people about my photography, and um, 
you know, why, you know, what am I, what, you know, what am I, why am I doing it? You know, is there like a, a purpose, what have you? And, um, and recently, so I've never really kind of been very like had a concrete ideas about that. I've just kind of been doing it. And I like, I like to show people wildlife. I like to show, um, express what I see out there um, to people. But something really ran true with me recently. Um, and a little story, and I'm probably going to completely uh, give you a bad rendition of this story. But it was during a, a Buddhist class, and um, a magician, a rather famous Canadian magician, were, was um, invited to a native um, reserve up in um, the north to do a magic show for these people. And they, you know, they all sat around and watched him, and he did his magic and they they all just kind of sat there and watched but they weren't engaged at all there was no expressions on their faces there was no applauding they so he you know he didn't quite understand um what was happening so he finished his his show and then everybody left and one one person stayed behind and he, he said so what did you think to the, what did you think to the magic mm-hmm and um, this person says, "What do you mean? What magic?" He says, "Well, you know, I, you know, you know, the magic that I was doing, you know, <laughs> like when the the rabbit appeared and so forth uh, out of nowhere." And he says, but "That's not magic. It's like when the every day this huge orange ball appears mm. from nowhere." into the sky says, that's magic and the magician was just kind of left um sort of almost in, <laughs> in, left, in left awe I would... he was like and then and the moments went by and they parted and then uh, uh, this uh, leader from the camp came back to the magician and he said ah, I know why you do magic now says you do it because people of this world have forgotten what the magic is and you're showing it to them mm. and so I, and so that's kind of what makes things like it's like this you know because we're all in in this very fast paced life that we never stop and look around us and you know if we're going to walk down the street but we're we're heading somewhere we're going somewhere and we're not you know looking around and so forth and so i i think i'd like to think that i can you know show that to people that this is what this is what is out there everybody can see this if you're in the right state you know if you just stop for a moment and look around Right. And I've noticed that uh, you keep a blog as well. I'm terrible. <laughs> but I, I, get inspired. <laughs> I don't know. There are a lot of entries. I uh, didn't, I didn't, I wasn't able to read through them all, but, uh, but I definitely tried to 
you know, get through a sizable chunk, but I, but I thought it was really interesting. Um, and, uh, and I'm often curious as to what the motivation is behind keeping a blog for the photographer. Um, what, what sort of function would you say it serves you? Um, well, when I do it, <laughs> I, it's, I guess it's to take people through this process of seeing the images and capturing the images. So, you know, when I, when I, went, when I, I went to Japan, and again, this is one of those great opportunities where my partner had a conference in Japan and I just tag along with her. And um, just Japan was just wonderful for Mixang. It was, you know, it, I don't know why, but it was just really very expressive. And I think it's just another way, um, you know, the images that appear on my blog are not necessarily images that I would um, exhibit at a gallery or, or um, attempt to sell online, but the just examples of the, you know what you, what what's around people and I find that a lot of so that's more sort of street photography and it but it's a lot of fun and um, and again I guess it's maybe this this um, hope of engaging people to see more around them. Hmm. Yeah. No. Just. Uh almost adding a backdrop and your perspective yeah. to your work and saying, hey, yeah. this is where I was mentally when I was taking this photo or even afterwards. Yeah. You know, you take something, you don't know why, and then you kind of look back at it and you're like, oh, you know, I kind of identify with this, you know, in this way or that way. Because I noticed that you often quote or pull from, from other inspirational sources or... Yeah, that was... There was a there was a kind of a competition on street photography where I think it was every week they came up with a quote from a from a photographer and you basically had to, you know have this quote in your head and then when you're walking around capture images that sort of speak to it and that was a lot of fun actually and I've been <laughs> wanting to kind of do that again but I guess yeah so. Without the blog, you basically all you see are these images that have been created, and I think the blog does add to the the method. How how did I get the? Where is this coming from? Why am I shooting in this particular style? Is it, am I just seeing wildlife, or is it is it can, is this on the street? Can you see this? Can you kind of see this elsewhere? Um, yeah, so yeah, backdrop is, is exactly, I think, is what is. It's sorry? That's, I think, so the, what you say about the, having a backdrop mm. to these images is, I think, is what the blog is attempting to do. Yeah, I found it curious just speaking to other people about why they, they write, and sometimes it's almost like a sense of, yeah, processing or reflection, and, you know, <laughs> I guess just trying to figure it out, but. Um, I, I, found, I found them very interesting, though. Um, it, uh, it was kind of cool looking at things from a different perspective, and, and I'm going to have to go and try and apply that myself, I think. That's the thing is, like, I, 
it's kind of interesting because my uh, I have a friend who's a jeweler and she's really good at doing blogs and I said to her, you know, how can you, why are you so good at this? Like, she's, you know, she's putting, posting things, um, very involved blogs um, every other day or at least, at least once a week. Mm-hmm. And she says, well, I'm an extrovert. I, I love to, like, engage with people and show people what I'm doing and so forth. I'm certainly not an extrovert. I, <laughs> I'm quite the opposite. And I think that does, can, can work against um, expressing yourself certainly through social media and I've never I've always worked against the you know if I'm not feeling like I want to do a blog or if I'm on Sable Island and I'm not engaged and I don't feel like I want to do photography I've never kind of forced myself to do it Mm. um so you know I I might be I might have one week left on the island and my mind is saying you've got one week left you better start taking photographs because you know you're not going to be back here for a while and it's like if I'm not there, um, then I don't usually push myself to get there. Right. Um, same with the blog. But now you've got me all excited about the <laughs> so I think maybe I'm now inspired. To... Oh, I'm glad I could help <laughs> or influence, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so this kind of brings me to my next question, actually. You uh, provided me with a lovely segue. How would you describe your personality and how would you say it shapes your craft? Um, well, I'm, I'm a um, rather quiet individual, certainly introverted, very open. Um, so I was kind of open before I started getting involved in Buddhist practices and like to keep me like to be calm and not um, get worked up about various things in life. Um, so that's really helped with the approach to the photography, um, for sure. And very engaged with nature, so I really enjoy living in Nova Scotia because it's very uh, it's not populated it's very open I can escape to the outdoors very easily very easily Um, you can bike to several lakes it's so nice that's right yeah so I can you know I can my partner and I can take our dog to a place within 30 minutes of the city and not see anybody Mm. um, for several hours so so coming from England which is of course very densely populated um it's definitely, I definitely feel good here. When I go back to England, I actually feel claustrophobic. There's so many people, there's a lot of traffic. There's, you know, there's no way where you can go and escape. <laughs> I uh, was listening to a comedian recently, and uh, they moved from London to yeah. uh, St. John, I think, New Brunswick. Oh, yeah. And yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they were just talking about everyone asking them, why would you ever do that? And they're like, it's so nice here. And nobody's <laughs> like, you know, you go back home and you got to watch your back. You come here and <laughs> people yeah. apologize yeah. For, for tripping over you. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. Can you describe a few of your favorite images and um, maybe what was what was happening at the time or what you learned for them or 
why you like them? Well, there's one that I really like, and it really expresses, I think, um, my approach to photography, and it's, it's simply a bit, it's called a sparrow on a wire, and it's simply a, um, it was taken on Sable Island, and it's a sparrow, it's sitting on this wire, um, the wire is kind of kinky, so it's it's a wire fence, mm-hmm. and along the bird is just sitting uh, sitting there looking along the wire and then there's a water droplet um some inches away from the bird and that's all it is uh, so it's a really simplistic image mm-hmm. but something um the sparrow although it's just sitting there not doing anything is is kind of very expressive and the water droplet droplet adds this um, sense of time to the image, mm. which is also another aspect of mixing. Um, and that's so the image wouldn't have been taken if, if I had if I didn't see this water droplet. And it's very still and calm and open and simple image. And so I. That is one that is really that I always have always liked. Um, and then there's another one which really speaks to me of a grey seal pup. So I was just lying with this grey seal pup. Um, <laughs> As you do snow. on Sable Island. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on sand, snow. And this pup was, you know, I was kind of engaging with this pup and he was just, you know, yelping at me and, you know, be really, very aggressive. And then there was just this moment where he just stopped. And that's when I took this photograph. And it's, but the seal pup in the image is almost out of the photograph. It's right on the, on the edge of the image. Um, and it just works. It just, it just worked. I mean, it, it's, it's, it looks um, doesn't look odd at all, and it's again the seal pup. Is, it's very expressive. There's huge space in the image. There's you know most of the image is just space, mm. and there's no color, but there's lots of texture, and so that was that also speaks to me because again it's just um, waiting for those you know those very rare moments to appear and, and, and capturing that on film. So one thing with Mixang is that because you spend a lot of time looking and and um, involved in this visual discernment, you're only clicking your shutter once. It's just one click of the shutter gets your image. So mm-hmm. there's no, and and sometimes I will take multiple images um, for whatever reason, and it's ne- and they never work. It's always the first image. Mm. Um, so they have this expression of like best thought, uh, first thought, best thought, hmm. um, and it's yeah, it's quite true. I I uh, personally don't work with a lot of 
negative space, as you will, in photography. Like, I, I don't think I've ever thought to seek out negative space in my photographs. Yeah. Um, but I but I really found looking through yours um, that uh, like it just it stood out to me more this time, I think, since, you know, I was going through and looking at them again because um, I've been familiar with your work for for a number of years. And um, and it was really, really interesting. I, I thought it was really, you know, it focuses your eye on uh, on the the object that that is there. Um, yeah. I, 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 yeah. I find it very interesting, yeah. Um, it is it is interesting because I don't... It just happens to be there. I don't kind of seek to put it in there. It's what seems to work. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I want to ask, um, what do you think is the most let's say, worthwhile investment uh, that you've made so far uh, towards your photography. So that can be anything from like time, energy, interest, money. So for example, um, some people say, you know, investing in a studio or education or even just like self-reflection. Is there um, is there anything that stands out as something that's contributed to your photography uh, more than you thought it would. But um, getting involved with Buddhist teachings has to be has to be the uh, the thing. One thing. <laughs> and it surprises me every time I go and take a course how it how it just so strongly relates to my photography. Hmm. Um. Yeah. Do you uh, do you know a lot of other photographers who practice uh, Ming Sung? Yeah, in Halifax is a bit of a hot it's a bit of a hot spot. Right. Um, There's a Shambhala yeah. school there, right? That's right. Yeah. And Chungyam Trumpa, who um, brought Shambhala to the West, and that's where it originated from. He would, oh, you know, he would often have a camera with him and would take these. Um, photographs, and then uh, a guy called Michael Wood, who used to live in Halifax and worked closely with Chungi and Trumpa, um, developed it into this practice of mixing. You know, he he really sort of took it on and actually created a a course which still runs today. Unfortunately, so I took that several courses with him, and unfortunately, he moved <laughs> to Boulder. Mm-hmm. Colorado, which makes it a lot more difficult. Um, but it does mean that there are, yeah, there are um, quite a few people around here, around Halifax, that uh, there's actually, very recently, there was a little exhibit, uh, mixing exhibit at the Shambhala Center. Oh, really? Of various photographers, yeah. Uh, all and from... You can, Sorry? And you can, you can you can definitely tell, pick up the style immediately. Um just the way, yeah, the very simplistic images, mm-hmm. but very expressive. I assume it's probably uh, a little bit easier for some people than others <laughs> to, to. Oh, I, love, yes. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, 
just having to go through and like clear the mind and and uh you know yeah come at things especially if you don't meditate already i'm i'm assuming yeah so when i first got involved i i didn't meditate and i went to my first class now i went to this class that you know mix sound contemplative photography you know it's going to Michael Woods said, when you finish this weekend, um, your eye, you'll feel like your eyes had surgery. Um, <laughs> and I was just like, come on, really? Yeah, I really wasn't expecting anything from it. Um, and, you know, one of the first things he asked was, you know, how many people in the room meditate? And everybody raised their hand apart from me. I was the only one who had not done any meditation at that point. Um, so yes, it's, it really, it really does help to be either involved in the practice of meditation or be able to enter into this very calm, open state. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I imagine there are some people who, and then again, there are some photographers who just, they just don't, they don't understand understand it they just don't get it yeah uh, how how does one challenge themselves uh in that philosophy is that how does one challenge themselves yeah like i'm always thinking about uh photography and how you can push a little bit further to yeah. better your skills and stuff and i perhaps I, maybe that's the wrong wording for what you want to accomplish? Yeah, I, I understand what you mean. Um, so when you start doing mixang, you focus on more, pretty much inanimate objects that expresses a lot of texture or a lot of color. Um, so you really, you basically go out and you search for color. Like you, you make yourself more open to color or you focus, like, you walk down the street and the practice is that you have to um, capture images from the street that um, if you see it, then it expresses street um, or water um, or space, light. So you start off very basic with these very basic elements and then you kind of build up. And for me, the challenge for me and it still is, is to take this practice to wildlife that is always moving and changing um, and still be able to capture these moments. Do you, uh, do you engage in personal projects at all? Or would you consider just your contemplative photography uh, a project in itself? Um, I do like to... No, I do like to explore outside of it. And one um, event that we have here in Halifax happens in other cities, Nocturne, which is basically an evening of art. So it's like from six in to midnight mm. and... All the venues are free, and people are invited to come in and um, set up exhibits, various projects to show to the public. Mm -hmm. And 
I, uh, I've done several of those. Um, first of all, it was part, you know, I, was, I just happened to be exhibiting artwork in a gallery, and so I would, and it would overlap with Nocturne. But in recent years, I've just kind of done a dedicated project, and one of them was, which is kind of, it's, and it's kind of related. Um, we co- I collaborated with a with a couple of photographers, and we called it "Who Was a Stranger," hmm. and it was a lot of a lot of fun. We had we invited so people would queue up. There were two uh, lines to queue up in, and there was a a curtain in between, so you couldn't see the people in the other line, and people didn't really know what was ha- you know what was what to expect. They would join this line. We'd get to the front of the line, and then um, one person from each um, queue would come into this makeshift studio. And as soon as they arrived, uh, we would have our camera set up and we would shoot a photograph. So the photograph happened very, you know, as soon as they entered into the space and they like were next to each other. And this, so the photograph captured this sense of strangers these two people who you know didn't know in, in pretty much all cases they didn't know each other hmm. uh, hadn't seen each other so very raw expression of human behavior yeah and then um what, what did you came, learn from that well what we learned there was another process to it so that we allowed people people then once we had taken that first image, I mean, in, basically in all cases, people were very standoffish. Um, so that, you know, there was, there was no touching and um, uh, or not looking at each other, not expressing any facial sort of welcoming <laughs> facial expressions. <laughs> and then they would have to engage in 15 seconds of eye contact. So just staring at each other's eyes for 15 seconds. And, of course, we really don't like to look at each other's eyes. We don't like to look at each other. Um, and, but it tells a lot about the person when you do engage. And so the idea was that they would engage for 15 seconds um, to kind of express themselves. And then after the 15 seconds... Um, they they were given props to kind of help break the tension um, between them. But the lot that tension had pretty much gone after that 15 seconds. And then we would take another photograph. So we would basically stand there and observe them um, interacting and then take another photograph. And then you would compare. They, then they walked away with this photograph from the first meeting and a photograph from after this 15-second eye contact, and really stark contrast. In most cases, people had just totally opened up to the other person mm. and were either touching or embracing, smiling in conversation. Um, only occasionally did were there people that were really off, put off by the other person and they <laughs> didn't, you could tell they didn't want to be there. <laughs> Oh, no. um, so it's just a great example of um, sort of asking ourselves, you know, what, what, a stri- what is a stranger and our perceptions of 
people who we don't know and being closed and then being very open to them. Sounds like some non-scientific research. <laughs> yeah. Although, I, <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> in all honesty, though, I, I have to say that I feel like um, the camera, especially when you're when you're photographing people, but well, really any subject is uh, it is a study of the subject. Yeah. You know, it's just a it's just a different uh, medium, I suppose. But uh, that sounds like a really really interesting project. I'd like to. Uh, I, I think I would have liked to see that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I the idea of course, is to do a, an art exhibit of the uh, the results. I mean, we have all these images. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so time, oh. unfortunately. I just haven't had time to go back and, and do it, but I, that, that's the next step. Well, I look forward to seeing that when that, when that comes about. I guess I should ask, uh, I ask every photographer this. If you were, for instance, in my chair and interviewing a photographer whose work you admired what sorts of things would you ask them what's what's maybe a question what are you curious about um i guess i would want to know why and where this expression is why they the need they the need for them to express themselves through photography, not necessarily through photography, but just where does this need come from for expressing something, their creativity? Mm. That's a really interesting question. And how do you share your work? Uh, where where can people find you? So I have a, a website, so it's lidgardphotography.com, and some of my work is in various shops around Halifax. I mean, right now I'm quite local. Uh, my next jump is to go beyond Nova Scotia with my work. And I published a book recently called Sable Island, which captures a lot of my images of the island and my expression of the island. Mm. Um, so that's published by Nimbus. And I'm on Instagram. I love, I like Instagram a lot, Lidgard Photo. That's really, really interesting. Um, thank you so much, actually, for, for coming on the show with me and uh, taking the time out to uh, let me hound you with questions. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's been really, it's been really interesting, actually, talking about it. Fantastic. Awesome. Cheers. Yeah. And that was my conversation with Damien Lidgard. You can find his work, as he said, at Lidgard Photo. That's L-I-D-G-A-R-D. That's his Instagram account. If you want to check out his website, it's lidgardphotography.com. And if you want to see this book, it's just titled Sable Island and again by Damien Lidgard. The island itself is really interesting. Please do take the time to check it out for yourself. There's lots of rich history in shipwrecks, scavengers, and attempts to colonize the island among other things. And of course the horses themselves are amazing. Maybe next time this year you can even buy a calendar that he puts out every year with uh, his images of the horses. And there are lots of resources for mixed sung uh, contemplative photography if that is something that you want to give a shot to as well. Check out 
my post on Facebook. That's at Depth of Field, and all the links will be there. Have a good week, and see you next Saturday.